Abolition. Abolition. When we think about the institution of slavery in America, we think of slave-owning whites as almost always men. White men were the perpetrators, the one who spearheaded the slave trade and who pressed for the continued enslavement of African Americans. But what about white women? Were they passive bystanders or were they active participants in enslavement? Now a new book draws on detailed historical research to make the case that white women saw themselves as slave owners and directly participated in and benefited from the institution. My guest is Stephanie E. Jones-Rogers, Assistant Professor of History at the University of California, Berkeley. She's the winner of the 2013 Lerner Scott Prize for Best Doctoral Dissertation in U.S. Women's History. And she joins me to discuss her brand new book. It's called They Were Her Property, White Women as Slave Owners in the American South. Welcome to the program, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me, Simone. So why is it that this history is so little known? Um, why do we not think of white women as having been active participants? It seems as though our sort of American culture has swept white women slave owners and their status as slave owners under the rug. Well, I think there are several reasons why um, we have tended to think of, of white women as passive bystanders or indirect beneficiaries of the institution of slavery. Um, one has to do with historians. Um, many of the, the histories of slavery um, for, for many decades were written by uh, men, and, and there was um, very, very, there were very few women who were involved in um, the narration, the narrativization of, of, of the history of slavery. And so when you think about the fact that we are we are self-interested. Um, many historians, you know, we, we like to think of ourselves as, as objective, um, you know, objective observers. Um, but in many respects, we are very deeply invested in our in the history that we tell. And so many of these men wrote stories about um, the individuals who they were most interested in, and those were white men um, who who they did very eloquently um, uh, demonstrate were deeply invested in the institution of slavery. Um, the second the second reason why I think um, we we rarely hear about um, the very active roles, um, economic roles that white women played in the institution of slavery is in large part because of this um, legal doctrine called coverture. I talk about this extensively in the book. Um, and what this what this doctrine um, basically um, provided was or stipulated was that when a woman um, owned any property, if she brought, if she had any property that she inherited from someone, if she um, um, bought any property, um, she was um, able to possess that property as long as she wasn't married. But once she married, um, that property um, and all the, the kind of assets that would be that would come from that property became her husband. And so many historians have looked at this legal doctrine, have, have looked at um, the ways in which this doctrine kind of um, is discussed in um, the, the 19th century during the era of slavery, and have, have largely dismissed these women in large part because they believe that this legal doctrine, that this law, that the, the way that the law was structured around white women's or women's ability or inability to own property Property, that it foreclosed the possibility that these women would be able to be directly um, invested in an economic way um, in the institution of slavery. Um, and so many, many, I think many of the, the, the stories that we know about, about women um, in large part um, remove the, the economic element in large part because of this legal dimension, this, um, the, the, the impact that this law um, was uh, allegedly had on the lives of all married women um, in, the, in, the, in the South, but also in the North, um, in the entire um, United States. 
So in terms of um, enslaved African Americans being viewed as property, at what age were white women essentially given this property? You write in your book that little girls um, at a very young age were put you know, we're basically told that that they were that, that this adult human being was their property and would transfer to them when they were adults. Well, that's a wonderful um, um, observation and really important um, point that I make in the beginning of the book because um, I think that when we when we talk about those stories, the narratives of slavery, the histories of slavery that we're familiar with, they often start when women are women, when they're adults. Um, and so that, I think, also lends itself to why we, we don't um, typically hear about the economic investments that women have in the institution of slavery. So by starting the story much earlier and by looking to what in formerly enslaved and enslaved people have to say about white women's economic investments in the institution, we learned that this investment didn't start, didn't begin when these women became women, when these white females became adults. The, the relationship really began when they were only infants. So there are instances in which um, white female infants um, nine months old are given uh, enslaved people as their own, as gifts, um, as birthday gifts, as Christmas gifts. Um, and what you also see is that as they um, as they progress to certain coming of age moments, so at the age of 16 or at the age of 18 when they are married, um, those milestones that we, we celebrate even today, women, these females, these white females were actually being given um, enslaved people as their own. Um, so the story begins with childhood, with infancy, and they, they begin to, I'm sorry, so they learn, they learn very early on um, that, that, that there's this really important um, um, part of their identities that's connected to the ownership of enslaved African Americans. So th- then these women are socialized. They were socialized as they were raised, as they grew into adulthood, to view these human beings that they saw in their house that they interacted with as their property. Absolutely. So, of course, you know, I think it's, it's, it's important for me to note that um, this, this is a process of socialization. This is not, um, the book does not make an argument that, you know, immediately upon birth, you know, white females are racist or they learn um, about white supremacy. This is a process that, that takes place over the course of their lives. It's a process that begins very, very early on. And so, yes, they are um, socialized Imme- immediately when they um, 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 are born into this culture of violence, this culture of enslavement and bondage of, of, of white supremacy. They slowly learn, um, but um, it's, the learning process begins almost immediately. They slowly learn um, that they have um, the, the power, the control, the ability to um, to own um, other human beings. So it does, in fact, um, it is, a, in fact, a process of socialization um, that happens over the course of their lives and doesn't just begin once they're, they're, they're adults and they, they marry into, you know, into slavery. The table about to turn. The table about to turn. The table about to turn. Yeah. Flipping through my timeline, trying to get my mind right. My city cried out. I got to cool down, but I'm under pressure. Looking with my crystal, look at where my fist goes. A renegade when I'm in a rage. I got to cool down, but I'm under pressure. I keep my hands dirty, my mind clean. Got a new 
interview with Professor Stephanie Rions Rogers on her book, They Were Her Property, White Women as Slave Owners in the American South. And that was followed by Turntables by Janelle Monet. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, 5 Mountain, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archive podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org and on all major podcast platforms. My name is Yusuf Hassan. Uh, my co-host, Max Parthis, is away today, so I'm joined by guest co-hosts Tag Harmon and Gina Kenny. First, uh, Tag, welcome to the show uh, remind the people uh, who you are and introduce yourself for those who are just tuning in for the first time. Peace, peace. Much appreciated. Still in the mix, as always. Burning down plantations. Can certainly get behind that. This is Tag, uh, you know, just out here, abolitionist, uh, affiliated with the campaign to bring Mumia home, also repping. Root and Branch Collective, NYC, as well as the Spirit of Mandela campaign. And uh, it's it's always great to connect with y'all, amped up after that mix for sure. Uh, thanks, thanks a lot, Tag. We're going to jump into the conversation uh, shortly. I uh, want to also bring in our other guest co-host. It's none other than the Ohio player herself, Gina Kenny. Uh, 
Welcome to the show, Gina. Same thing. Introduce yourself or reintroduce yourself for the listening audience. Hey, everyone. As always, it's an honor to be here with Abolition today. Um, on behalf of the state organizer for Ohio for Abolish Slavery National Network and the president of EPIC, Ensuring Full for Incarcerated Citizens Registered in Ohio. And I am also partnered with and do work with Surge, Showing Up for Racial Justice, uh, which I know Max, or I mean, I'm sorry, Yusuf will be jumping into that later and telling you all all about the organization, but it is a... uh, or a white organized type organization where we uh, campaign in primarily all white neighborhoods to uh, canvas and phone bank and be boots on grounds, educating obviously the white people who we need to wake up and shake a little bit and, and, and let them know that like this fight is just as much as their fight as it is anybody's. It's time for us to stand up for our people. Thank you for that, Gina, and I hope you uh, have a ton of them tuned in tonight. It's going to be a tough episode, but so last week uh, we were joined by Shifa Rahman and Brian Palmer of the Convict Leasing and Labor Project and Savannah Eldridge of the Abolished Slavery National Network. The mission of uh, CLLP is to expose the history and ongoing on, uh, impact of convict leasing system and its connection to modern prison slavery while restoring the dignity of all victims of forced labor and their descendants. Uh, CLLP is also at the forefront for the fight to preserve the Sugarland 95's burial ground and ensure they are properly memorialized. Tune in uh, to abolitiontoday.org so you can catch that archive from last week. It was a great episode. This week, we're going to have a kind of discussion about the forgotten and most times ignored history that 40% of enslavers were white women. As you heard in the opening clip, we're going to be sharing uh, the interview with Professor Stephanie Jones Rogers. We have another clip coming up soon uh, on her book. They were her property: white women and slave owners in the American South. We'll see how this history shaped the erasure of black women from the women's suffrage movement, voting rights, and many other movements up until today. So we're talking about femme fatale frenemies, a relationship that started on the plantation and perpetuates to this day. And as always, we'll have powerful music clips, and we'll bring the ancestors' words back to life for a new generation without bridging the gap segment. So let's jump right into the uh, discussion. I'll start with you, Tag. Uh, uh, any comments you have on the opening uh, audio, the interview, as well as the opening track? Yeah, yeah. Don't forget. I, I don't. I don't know that I had heard that track before, but I definitely am familiar with um, the sister uh, Janelle Monet and and um, and their work. Um, but I don't know that I had heard that track. It was definitely resonating. And as for the discussion um, off of the the book and um, you know and, and Stephanie Jones Rogers, you know, it's just as she laid out an extremely important and uh, often overlooked of this history for, for, for mad different reasons. And I thought that she broke it down quite well. And it is always striking to me when going through some of these narratives, as far as uh, the, you know, the narratives of the enslaved and, and, and how they, you know, um, escaped and, uh, and their experiences, it's always striking 
when they discussed this question of, of being given as gifts, you know, whether it was themselves or relatives of theirs. I remember uh, distinctly, for example, in, in, the, uh, in the narrative uh, around um, – in, in the in the enslaved uh, uh, narrative um, in which, and I'm, I'm uh, somehow spacing on on uh, their names right now, but where they they ended up escaping by uh, pretending that um, the that uh, one of them was actually a white enslaver, um, and 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 that's how they they ended up um, being able to to uh, escape their enslavement. But they they also recounted the fact that um, their family members had been given away as gifts, you know. Um, uh, so, yes, it's, it's something that, that is just devastating to read about um, and, to, and to recognize as reality, but it, it has to, we have to get into it because, as we know, it's, it's still going on out here. So uh, I, I really appreciate what, what, uh, what she was laying out. Thank you for that tag. Uh, Gina. How would you like to chime in as on this? A, uh, well, as a as a white woman, as most should know, um, it kind of angers me. And up until recently, uh, obviously abolition today and, you know, good old Max Parkvis, you know, you guys school me and educate me a lot, especially on this issue, because these are things we weren't taught in school. And I was never known to know that 40% of slave owners were white women. And it's it's devastating to know that and then to hear that, like, people were literally born into families and, and, and given. Like, you know, human beings were given away. And to me, that's sad. Like, just to know that it was more so white women, and, and it's never even been talked about. You know, you hear about, you know, Abraham Lincoln. You hear about all these old other white men who have been slave catchers, but, you know, the women are being drug under the rug and being protected, so to speak, and it kind of angers me. Well, thank you for that feedback. So uh, swinging back to what uh, Tag had just mentioned, uh, from SmithsonianMagazine.com, The Great Escape from Slavery of Ellen and William Craft, passing as a white man traveling with his servant, two slaves fled their masters in a thrilling tale of deception and intrigue. So that's the story. Uh, the article will be up on our page, as well as all of the other music and uh, articles you'll hear in tonight's uh, broadcast and all of our previous broadcasts. So I want to jump into part two of the track because she goes a little deeper into it because now she's going to start explaining the relationships between the white women or the sometimes children, as she's going to further explain, and those who were enslaved. So this is uh, part two of Professor Stephanie Jones Rogers' interview on her book, They Were Her Property, and it's going to be accompanied by music from Gregory Isaacs entitled Slave Master. You listen to Abolition Today with Yusuf Hassan, along with our guest host, Tag Harmon, and Gina Kennedy. We'll be right back. Abolition. Abolition. So then, as adults, how did white women 
fight to keep their property and you write about this in your book what were some of the legal challenges they faced and how hard did they work to essentially ensure that the so-called pro- the property that included owning human beings remained in their um ownership uh and 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 benefited them economically that's a really important question and it it drives i think it drives the argument that i make it's, it's very much an economic argument but it's based upon it's it's grounded upon a legal one so as i mentioned there's this doctrine um called coverture um which essentially says that single women or widowed women who own property or who earn wages um that that property and those wages those assets that wealth immediately becomes their husband's upon marriage um and so women know this you know white female they grow up knowing about this legal doctrine they might not know the particularities of of the law but they are told through their parents you know through conversations with their parents um through conversations with each other through the rumor mill through their social networks that they should expect this when they get married and so not only do they work with their parents but also work independently with um friends you know they might seek advice through friends um they work um around these constraints they figure out what loophole loopholes exist in the laws that would allow for them to acquire property or to maintain the property and to contain and secure the property that they already own um for their own use and for the in, in within their own control um before they get to that point so these women are very savvy um their parents are very very helpful in this process and they they actually help them to develop strategies to circumvent these constraints upon um their abilities to own property more broadly but in this particular case um to own slaves and i think slave slave the, the ownership of slaves is very important um in this context i think in large part because you know judges that are sitting on these courts um and juries are that are sitting on courts when women's property rights are infringed upon or jeopardized in some way their ownership of enslaved people um happen to be jeopardized in some way these are slave owners most of the individuals who form the juries in the south most of the judges are slave owners so they see in these women participants in um active members in a system um um that it, that benefits white people like themselves so they see themselves in these young girls and these women they see their daughters and their wives in 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 their female kin in these women and so in many respects what i've learned through my my review of these legal courts and legal cases is that judges frequently rule in the favor of these women. They uphold these women's rights to own human beings. What was the relationship between white women and the people that they enslaved, particularly the black women that they enslaved? Um tell us about the way in which the white women's role as the managers of their households um led to a very particular relationship with black women particularly as wet nurses for their children for their white children So um there there's a very I think abundant um amount of scholarship that's been written on the relationships between white women and the enslaved women who worked within their households. Typically the 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 scholarship does not examine the relationship the very I think distinct relationship between white women who owned enslaved people, who owned those enslaved people working in their households and how ownership shaped those relationships. And so by looking at this very intimate relationship within the a broader economic context 
what I was able to discover is that just looking at this one case study in which white women who have children who, for whatever reason, um, either because they just don't want to or because for physiological reasons they are unable to um, to nurture their children, to, to nurse their children, to breastfeed their children, uh, rely upon, um, heavily rely upon enslaved women's uh, reproductive and maternal labor. Um, to, to, they, they, they rely upon these women to, um, to, to suckle their children. That by looking at that relationship, not simply as an intimate one, but also as an economic one, what you find is that um, these relationships are very much defined by the economy of slavery. These, these very intimate maternal relationships domestic, uh, with quotations around it, relationships that often remain cloaked within the household or hidden behind the curtains of the household are very much economic relationships when you realize that these women are property, that enslaved women are property, that the women who are employing them as wet nurses, um, that are purchasing them for that purpose, that are hiring them for that purpose, see these women as economic units as well as reproductive units and also as human beings that are capable of giving them, giving their children um, the kind of nutritive care as well as maternal care that they may not be able to provide them or may not want to provide them. So it's a very intimate um, economic relationship as well. What happened to the children of those black women? Um, presumably black women were able to nurse uh, the white children because they themselves had recently been mothers. Absolutely. There are many accounts of formerly enslaved women and their children are typically the ones that, that give these accounts, which I think is um, a really powerful um, and important point to make, that often the accounts that we have of these enslaved women serving as wet nurses come from their children. And many of these accounts actually demonstrate that women, these enslaved women are often having children at the same time or around the same time as the white women whose children they, they, they later uh, breastfeed. And because of kind of these, the racial um, notions of racial inferiority, it's very complex and very confusing um, to kind of um, ideological process that's happening in these moments. But because of the notions um, of, of racial inferiority, the, the idea that that, that black women may may and also may not be um, the same in terms of physiologically as white women. Um, there are all these kind of apprehensions around having black women nurse their own children or nurse black children while also nursing white children. So it's really interesting to see that what they will typically do to kind of help to mitigate or assuage their fears or their anxieties around the uh, the, the kind of simultaneous um, labor that, that enslaved women would have to pro pro provide or perform for their white children as well as their own enslaved children, they will typically separate these enslaved women from their children. And these enslaved children are often forced to um, be bottle fed, which in this moment in time was a very dangerous and unhealthy um, uh, practice that uh, pediatricians or individuals who we would consider pediatricians today um, strongly advised against doing. Um, and they would often separate these women when they sold them away from their children or hired them um, to individuals who took them away from their children. So they, 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 these mothers, in the moment in which they're caring the most for their own infant's well-being, 
they're also dismissing and and dismissing the, the well-being of other children and separating other mothers from their children when they need them the most. And presumably some of the children that these black women were made to nurse um, would be gifted to these women as property um, at a young age, continuing Absolutely. that cycle. Absolutely. So there, there's one um, one account that I that I um, that I discuss in the book, where a woman is saying, "Oh yes, my mistress, my mistress and I were born around the same time, and my mother and her mother were born around the same time, and their mothers were born around the same time." And so there's this kind of multi generational um, transmission or circulation of labor um, that that these these women are descendants of other women who similarly um, engage in these practices, engage in um, separating enslaved mothers from their children um, in order to, to care for their own, um, to provide care for their own. So you see this kind of multi-generational process. And I think that links back to this issue of socialization. These women learn as, as your young girls that this is, this is what happens in our world, that this is okay in our, in our wor- world here in the context of Southern slavery. So yeah, so they they it's an intergenerational, multi-generational, multi-generational thing. Abolition. Abolition. You just heard part two of the interview with Professor Stephanie Jones Rogers on her book. They were her property, and the music that accompanied was Gregory Isaacs. Slave Master. Welcome back to Abolition Today with Yusuf Hassan and our guest co-host Tag Harmon and Gina Kennedy. So this time I'll start with you, Gina. Uh, I'm sure you have a lot to say on this one, especially being a mother, you know, so I'm sure you can identify with what was going on in her interview at this juncture. Um, to me, it's absolutely crazy that, you know, the property was good enough for their own babies, but not for their own. I mean, to, you know, detach mother from their own babies, uh, you know, that's traumatic enough. So um, to me, it's, it's absolutely insane. Like, again, I was oblivious to all of this history because, again, it's never been taught, right? I feel like over, you know, and I'm 38 years old, I feel like over over time all of that type of history has uh, made its way to disappear because that's what they wanted it to do so we couldn't become woke. Um, yeah, it's devastating. Like, white women, what what were you thinking? Um, so more more now than ever knowing, now that we know, like it is definitely time for us to do our own our own due diligence to educate ourselves more on why we as white women need to come to the front line uh, for any type of issue, whether it's criminal justice reform, whether it's racial, you know, racial disparities, whatever it is, it's more important now for us white women to stand together with our people and bond together because those enslavers definitely put a bad name on my nationality and I'm ashamed, period. Thank you. Thank you for that, Gina. Uh, before I get to uh, tag, I want to bring in Savannah Eldridge. Uh, everyone knows Savannah. Savannah is home here, you know, uh, from Abolish Slavery National Network and Be Frank for Justice. Savannah, welcome back to the show. 
to be honest, you guys hear background noise. I'm in the car, but um, I really wanted to chime in. Um, we're, we're talking about separation of children from mothers, you know, in the southern states, um, in the past tense. However, you know, I live in Texas. I'm down here on the border, and we've seen that as of late um, in immigration where children were being separated from their mothers and parents unable to find their children as they were, and they were showing up to court without parents, you know, prior to being deported. So um, this type of thing is still going on. And just, I mean, I just wanted to also say, like, from a personal experience, she was a domestic worker. Um, she worked at, uh, as a housekeeper. Um, and this is, you know, when I was young, I was born in the 70s. I would say from, you know, about 20 years, she, she did that before she passed away um, in 2004, but she worked to take care of the home and the children of a wealthy uh, physician um, in my hometown. Um, and I just remember those days where, you know, she spent her time taking care of the house, and, and granted, she was being compensated, but she took her time to take care of the house, you know, clean and take care of the kids, take the kids to soccer practice. Um, and she'd be so tired that by the time she got home, she didn't have the energy to take care of her own kids. And and I counted her because she was helping my mom raise me. But, you know, it was like, you know, we, we didn't dare ask her to cook um, in the evenings after she worked because she'd be so tired. And, and, again, like, this is in the 20th century. This is in the 21st century. So um, th these types of things are, are going on, and uh, women's issues are women's issues. And I believe that, you know, as women and as mothers, um, we have to do better about communicating our struggles and communicating what our family strife looks like, right, and, and what our family joy looks like. Um, and part of the issue is that, you know, a lot of times people negate others' experience because that has not been their own experience, and we can really learn a lot from listening to each other um, and, and that, you know, and communicating overall. Um, I feel like that's the only way that we're really going to have solidarity um, to be able to understand one another. Amen. problem is I'm sitting here muted. I'm sitting here talking up a storm. So... Let's try this again. Uh, I was asking Tag, it's uh, your turn to uh, chime in uh, on part two of the clip or anything that you heard from the two women with us. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I feel as though it was covered very strongly and clearly, and, and peace, uh, Sister Vanna, great to hear from you again um and yeah the fact the fact that this is continuous and ongoing and and as was mentioned in the clip it's intergenerational and it just keeps being intergenerational in, in terms of the fact that uh over half of the women that are currently incarcerated under prison slavery are are mothers right now and and those numbers are even higher inside of these jails you know, so it, it, it just keeps continuing. It, it shows how uh, just d disgusting and vile the system of enslavement is. 
particularly when it comes to uh, those who are the most vulnerable, you know, like children, uh, for example, and, and, and how it's completely uh, antithetical to family, how, how uh, part of how it runs, how it, how it operates, is, is to do everything that it can to, to destroy families. And, and so uh, great looks, Brother Youssef, for, um, for filling that in. I, I was spacing on the name, I don't know how, but with the craft, yeah, the uh, William and Ellen Kraft, uh, that, that text is called Running a Thousand Miles for Freedom. And um, a- anyone that, that hasn't had a chance to check it out, I, I would absolutely encourage uh, that, you, that you peep it. It's, it's mad interesting and gives uh, a whole lot of perspective on enslavement that uh, I, I at least have not really come across in too many other texts of its kind. And um, if I could just quote from it real quick, this is very early on in the text, but it it zeroes in exactly on this issue. So Mm -hmm. uh, uh, William Kraft is describing uh, his, his wife, Ellen Kraft, and her upbringing. And it says, my wife's first master was her father and her mother his slave, and the latter is still the slave of his widow. Notwithstanding my wife being of African extraction on her mother's side, she is almost white. In fact, She is so nearly so that the tyrannical old lady to whom she first belonged became so annoyed at finding her frequently mistaken for a child of the family that she gave her when 11 years of age to a daughter as a wedding present. So this is just how they do, and it's absolutely uh, unspeakably disgusting and, 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 and evil. Wow, yeah, that's that's uh I'm speechless on that. You know, uh there's an article in Mississippi Today dot org uh on the book and it says the book contains many uh anecdotes and references about Mississippi. In eighteen forty one Susan Hunter bought eighteen slaves while she lived in a, in the state and later moved to Kentucky where she went to court to ensure she was legally recognized as their owner. In Scuba, Mississippi, a woman named Frances Gray says she didn't allow anyone, including her husband, to mistreat her slaves because they were, in quote, her property and her living, and she wasn't, she won't go to load nobody to whip them. <laughs> I don't have the southern accent. She wasn't going to allow nobody to whip them. The professor also goes on to say, I often call it an ugly feminist history because it's like a feminist dream in some respects. Women say, okay, I can't do A, B, and C, but I'm going to find ways to exercise autonomy in my life anyway. And they do that in ways that not only benefit them directly, but subsequent generations. But the problem with that dream is that it eventually turns into a nightmare. Slavery was their freedom. They were able to exercise control and autonomy by owning enslaved people. So that's the article from Mississippi Today. They were her property. Author reveals how white women took part in and profited from the slave industry. Uh, I want to go back to 0390. I was trying to bring you in on the call earlier, but uh, we got you back now. 0390, you're on Abolition Today. Hi, can you hear me? This is Sharon. Hi, Sharon. Yes, I can hear you loud and clear. Okay. Well, a couple of things I wanted to say. One is 
um, about the 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 nature of the women owning slaves and slaves being given as gifts. Um, that mm-hmm. was a common practice. In fact, uh, Sally Hemings, you remember her? Uh, sure. Thomas Jefferson's quote mistress. Um, mm-hmm. She was actually the daughter of. She was actually the half sister of Thomas Jefferson's wife. And was given oh. as a wedding gift mm-hmm. um, to um, the new Mrs. Jefferson. The things you find yeah. out, see, just over these type of conversations. Right, um, because um, Thomas Jefferson's father-in-law was the father of both women, um, or the grandfather of mo- both women, I, I forget, um, where Sally Hemings was in this uh, mix, but her mother, Sally's mother, was a slave in the household of Jefferson's father-in-law. Um, and and um, he, I think Sally was given away with um, the daughter to Jefferson as a wedding gift. <clears throat> and then she died, and apparently she looked a lot like Jefferson's wife. Uh, because she had come from the same family. Um, And the other thing I wanted to say was that there's really a book, if you want to hear from an enslaved woman's point of view of uh, what was going on during that time and what their experience was like, uh, there's a book called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs. Mm -hmm. And she has some really... um, she speaks a lot about the the je- the jealous mistress is the name of one chapter. Um, so I'm just going to read a, a a small bit of it if you don't mind. Let me get to sure. my starting place. Sure. Um, okay. Can you hear me well enough? Yes, loud and clear. All right. So, where did I want to start? Um, Something about Southern women. Take my glasses off so I can read better. Southern women often marry a man knowing that he is the father of many little slaves. They do not trouble themselves about it. They regard such children as property, as marketable as the pigs on the plantation. And it is seldom that they do not make them aware of this by passing them into the slave trader's hands as soon as possible and thus getting them out of their sight. Um, and the book has some, some really interesting chapters about her relationship with the jealous mistress. Um, I highly recommend that you pick up a copy, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs. It's a rare slave narrative written by a woman. Uh, thank you so much for that, Sharon. Uh, Sharon, you know, you know, longtime supporter of the program, so we definitely appreciate you calling in. It's been a while since I've spoken to you, but I definitely appreciate it. Uh, we have one more caller that I want to get to before we switch gears and go a little forward in history. So our last caller is 8762. You are now on Abolition Today. Welcome to the program. Hi. Can you all hear me? Yes, we hear you. Okay, great. 
Um, I'm excited to be here. My name is Karen Sita. I live in the state of Vermont, uh, the first to set the exception clause. And in November, we're going to be the first state of many to abolish slavery because we're going to vote. Vermonters are going to vote. Um, you That's said, right. I'm always appreciative of listening to you. Um, I know many people consider Max a teacher, but I consider you my professor <laughs> of life. And I appreciate you uh, um, just giving this wisdom of, you know, like many people, we lived in ignorance um, of just how severe slavery is. And I'm just always in awe and always disgusted <laughs> by listening to it. So I really appreciate that. So back to this topic and back actually um, back to the Harriet Jacobs um, book, because I actually read that in college. Well, some say college. I call it my own personal plantation as well. Um, but anyway, mm-hmm. in college, we have the situation, uh, Harriet Jacobs book. And remember, Harriet Jacobs was a woman who spent half her life hiding between, I think it was like two inches of walls, you know, living in a wall, <laughs> just hiding from cruelty and evilness outside. Um, and I think a lot about black women, how we suffer. And I always tell the white women in Vermont, because this is an all-white state, uh, 1%, I think black women, I mean, we're 1.6 for the team. And so I don't know the population of black women um, in total in Vermont, but I know it's for one percent. I know we're probably lower than that. So I always, you know, tell the white women um, that I constantly have to deal with the jealousy or just the fact that they are uncomfortable with the rise of black women in this state. I always tell them, you know, either we're going to get along as sisters or we're going to die as fools. And a lot of the times is um, I love that she talks about jealousy because you know. People say, it's, I'd rather deal with someone's jealousy than someone's anger. I mean, think about what these white women had to deal with in the plantation. They had to deal with their husbands running away to be with black women. They had to deal with the I mean, look at Underground, which is a um, the own network. The first mm-hmm. scene of the Underground um, movie, the woman's having a baby, and the slave women are helping one of them have a baby. And she's like, shush, 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 the mistress might hear you. They weren't concerned about the slave master, they were concerned about the mistress. And that's how I actually discovered um, this book, um, They Were Her Property, because when I saw that scene, I thought about, oh, wait, I thought they were nice, because like many, I thought, you know, the southern white women were just, you know, beautiful in these big dresses and just watching these men do business, and they're just like, oh, my gosh, we're just hus- we're just wives. We don't know anything. We're wives. We're just, you know, we just got the ring. We just got married into the family. We don't know anything. And I think that's kind of what we see right now. It's like, oh, we don't know anything. We don't know what black women are suffering. We don't know um, what's going on with their pay. We don't know any of this stuff. We don't know what's happening with health care and how they're often, you know, disadvantaged. We don't know any of these things. But we're supposed to know all of their issues as black women. We're supposed to know how they suffer. We're supposed to know what's going on in their situation. And I I think about the fact, um, one last statement is I want to say is that, you know, it's just so normal to dismiss black women and you know think about the kardashians all white women birthed by black a white woman you know chris jenner is a white woman the father right armenian will give him that historical props but the mother a white woman from america you know but they all have kids some of them had kids from surrogates all black women so i'm thinking why are these white women married to black men why won't they have white women birth their children since they themselves are white women, but they're having black women birth their <laughs> children? You know what I mean? I mean, these are things that you can see through media. These are things that you can just see. It's just still alive. It's changing and expanding, and, and maybe now it's on social media, but 
all of the stuff that we saw on the plantation and how they behaved and how they treated the disrespect of the, you know, expecting you to tell them where you've been, you know, or them doing nothing and we're supposed to be okay. I mean, there's just a lot that black women suffer with, and, and I want the conversations to happen, and I'm glad that Yusuf, you um, are having these conversations because, again, we can get along as sisters or we're going to die as fools. So I'm glad that we are looking at each other's pain and realizing who needs to heal who. So I thank you for your comment. Uh, Keep listening because a lot of the things that you just brought up are going to be answered. And just to answer your question, according to the 2020 census in Vermont, black women don't even qualify for any type of percentage. It's out of the 624,000 population in Vermont, black women make up 3,235. So you can punch that into the calculator, and that's going to be very below 1%. But we have to move on to our next topic. But keep listening for sure. You may want to uh, chime in later on. I wanted to say that. As Miss Black. She may have dropped her call. So I want to switch gears a little bit because we went back to the plantation. And we want to fast forward a little bit to see what what were some of the things that went on as we started transitioning from chattel slavery into the quote-unquote Reconstruction era. So we have this great clip from, from uh, give me one second, it's from Time Magazine. And they're interviewing uh, a few ladies on the on this interview. It's uh, Martha Jones, professor of history of John Hopkins University. Uh, Lisa Chetrault, she's the associate professor of history at Carnegie Mellon, and she's the author of The Myth of Seneca Falls. So let's check out this track. It's called Women's Suffrage Movement, and it leaves out black women. And that's going to be accompanied by Arrested Development featuring Keandra, Never had your back. You listen to the abolition today with Yusuf Hassan, without guest hosts Tag Harmon and Gina Kenny. We'll be right back. Abolition. Abolition. When students learn about women's suffrage in school, they often learn about Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, the so-called mothers of the movement. And they are taught that it all started with a meeting in Seneca Falls, New York in 1848. Oftentimes the story of the Seneca Falls meeting is told as a kind of origin story, as the beginning of a movement for women's rights and ultimately a movement for women's suffrage. And yet when we realize the meeting is some 300 people, principally white middle class women, in a relatively remote upstate New York village, that is a hint that we probably need to look at some other places to get a fuller story. For African-American women who'd been organizing inside churches and other places since the 20s and 30s, this was not a particularly important moment, nor was it a meeting they would have attended, nor were the demands that they made particularly germane to the lives of women living under the twin oppressive forces of racism and sexism. Black women are excluded at Seneca Falls because they're not really invited. Two years later, a much bigger national convention on women's rights takes place. The 1850 meeting in Worcester, Massachusetts, Stan and Anthony aren't even there. It was the first national women's rights meeting. 
So in some ways, that's really cohering activism that's taking place around the country in a way that Seneca Falls was just a local impromptu convention. One of the women who spoke there was famed abolitionist Sojourner Truth. Sojourner Truth will emerge later in the women's movement as an important speaker on women's rights. She will also emerge as an abolitionist. By 1850, Sojourner Truth is very much a presence in women's rights circles, really shaping the debates. But she didn't begin at Seneca Falls at all. Saint and Nancy are dealing with a world where emancipation is the new reality. And many people are saying to women, black men's right to vote must happen now for reasons of free people's safety. And Stanton and Anthony will say no. Women's suffrage should come first. And they are unusual in the Women's Rights Coalition that they demand this. They're staunchly opposed to black men voting before white women uh, in unspeakably racist terms. And our movement, they say repeatedly, is the most important movement for human rights ever inaugurated. And they're undermining, really, the memory of abolition and the memory of emancipation in that process. It's easy to think of the story of women's suffrage as a kind of fully emancipatory and celebratory story that's, you know, just necessarily progressive. And in the following November, the ladies appeared at the polls on election day by the hundreds of thousands. The emancipation of womanhood in the United States was now complete. The 19th Amendment does not invest anybody with a right to vote. And we don't spend nearly enough time thinking about the language of the amendment, which is really key, saying you may not discriminate in voting on the basis of sex. It does not say women have a right to vote, which actually does not exist. For many white women, clearing the obstacle of sex was sufficient to get them voting access. When the 19th Amendment is adopted, the open secret is that too many millions of African-American women in this country will not be able to vote because the amendment doesn't do anything to override the segregationist laws, the Jim Crow laws in the South, like poll taxes and literacy tests that are going to be imposed on black women such that they won't be able to vote even after the 19th Amendment. We don't realize the ways in which the white suffrage movement threw women of color under the bus, allowed their continued disenfranchisement to go ahead, allowed their brutalization of their bodies to go ahead and say nothing. We lose track of the fact that lots of other women are not emancipated in this story, that those women's rights are sacrificed. After 1920, African-American women have to kind of look up from the 19th Amendment to not only recognize that they are still disenfranchised, they have to look up to answer the question, so how are we going to win a right to vote? That is the moment for the building of a new movement for voting rights, one that will take black women and men until 1965 and passage of the Voting Rights Act. are inaudible. No, this is that. Named after Miles the Gap. Mumble raps get the trap. And every week there's an all new that. So I just relax and that hurt to her. Cause I prefer to defer to black girl magic. Plus all the things me and my queen put into her. 
Nice to blur. I remember when she was young, all the lessons that did occur. Teach her by bees and birds and streets and curbs and dreams to bird. Nice to use and Mary McKeever, Angela Davis, facts. The combat, the there to that, the dudes black, so nothing could save us. Freedom fighting is proper behavior. I tell her, you're a black queen and you're not a bitch. And nah, nah. you're not a fixin'. Nah, nah. You're not a trick bitch. Nah, nah. You're nobody's quick fix. Nah, nah. America's never had your back. No, no, no. You're not a trap queen. White boy fetish thing. Never made a black queen. I assume America's never had a black girl. No, no, no. America's never had a black girl. No, no, no. America's never had a black girl. Stop your bullshit. Get off your pulpit. You've been a pit bull. The black women, the fullness of what you've done. The slave shacks back in the wilderness. Having your way with women. The little girls, they children was breaking in entry centuries of souls. Thrown in manure pits. Did you pit it? You're like kids against the darker kids. Now we're conditioned to keep talking this. Hating the old women. Intimacy divisions yeah. and indecisions. Relational confusion. Materialistic dilutions and all of this because of your intrusions. No wonder we all came to the conclusions that black lives don't matter. Murder of Brianna Taylor. Black blood splatters America constantly failing us. Give reparations. Give a separate nation. No more diversity talk. It's a black situation. And stop degrading our dear sisters on TV stations. Yeah, yeah. You're a black queen and you're not a bitch. And nah, nah. you're not a fixin'. Nah, nah. You're not a trick bitch. Nah, nah. You're nobody's quick fix. Nah, nah. America's never had your back. No, no, no. With that, they love it, your full lips, your melanin darkness. On them, they display it on you, they dismiss it. And all of this madness status could easily be reversed. The black queens were seen as God's packages and nurtured. We see what you've done to the people that was first here. Us rising up is your worst fear, America. University, Martha Jones, along with Lisa Tetrault, Associate Professor of History at Carnegie Mellon University, and that was followed by Arrested Development featuring Keandra, Never Had Your Back. Tag, I'm going to start with you this time because, uh, you know, we're surrounded by the women, 
and uh, the women have definitely put forth some strong opinions and great information, so it's definitely your turn to chime in, brother. Well, it's respect, absolutely, and really feeling the, the analysis and the commentary overall, and um, I, I absolutely align with uh, what, what I've heard, and it just speaks to the contradictions on contradictions on contradictions. You know, it, it's it's just ongoing, and it is early and often the way that um, that we, and especially as as is being pointed out, African descended women um, are just attempts are made to erase them and uh, African descended people writ large um, out of out of these narratives, out of these histories, out of out of the the present realities. Um, at every turn, and it's it's systematic, you know. So even for example, um, it, I, I'm I'm really feeling the the that we're invoking, you know, Harriet Jacobs' uh, narrative right now, and and her struggles. Now, like how how often do we hear about in school or elsewhere, you know, somebody like an Anne Frank, for example, you know, and it's and it's in no way to, of course, take anything away from. The, the severity and, and, and the reality of a situation like that, but compare that to how often Harriet Jacobs' name gets brought up, you know, it's not even, it's not even close. And we're talking about, you know, she was up in that, uh, what, what she referred to as her, her loophole of, of retreat up in this attic, you know, nine by seven by three attic for, for two years uh, in, in, in escaping enslavement. And and this is this is rarely, uh, at least in my experience, um, brought up in in the classrooms, um, especially you know as 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 younger people. And and I'm quite sure with all that's going on with the so-called critical race theory, um, those those uh, appearances of 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 her uh, experience are are dwindling even further at this point. Um, but I I just want to shout out that. They do. There is a, a, a text uh, that also gets into uh, the Harriet Jacobs um, narrative and experience that is uh, very brilliantly written, in my view, called uh, "Demonic Grounds." And uh, the the second chapter of that text, called "The Last Place They Thought of Black Women's Geographies," uh, gets heavily into um, Harriet Jacobs's experience and um, basically analyzing how that relate to, to broader questions of, of black geographies. So, uh, but absolutely it's, it's, it's just a, it's just a whole boatload of contradictions, the way, the way these erasures, they happen in. Well, thank you for that. Uh, let's say, let's go over to Gina now, Gina. I think arrested development said it best when he said they ain't ever had our back, meaning the government, the people of power. I mean, whether it's to oppress, you know, people of color or women or, or whatever it is, they know what they're doing and they're, you know, we're blinded to it. And it's time for us to revolutionize together as, as one, no matter where you come from, what you've been through, and let them know that no longer, no more will we allow them to uh, ch- try to change the narratives, right? I mean, we know slavery is still hap- happening now uh, in almost every single state across the United States. And that's something that we've been all trying to accomplish together. Um, and it, and it's sad, like like I said, I, this is things that 
like Tag said, we, we didn't hear in school. Um, and I'm not a big history person, so these are stories I never heard of, right? Um, and over the last couple of years, me learning about things that happened way, way, way before my time, you know, I try not to um, do the whole history thing because there's no truth about any of it. What we learned in school was fake. You know, I remember learning about Abe Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson and, you know, all these white people that were, in fact, slavers. Um, and and it's, it's all the government, you know, it's the government versus us. The, the more that they can continue to try to separate us, I, I feel like they will until we, the people, um, you know, in solidarity come together and, and let them know that no longer, no more will we allow them to control us. It's just sad. Thank but, you for that. You know, just, it's just really sad what people have endured, whether what sure. role they play, period. Sure. So I want to read a clip from the same article, How History Classes on the Women's Suffrage Movement Leave Out the Work of Black Voting Rights Activists. Uh, and this was put out by Time.com. It says, what many American school children don't learn is that Susan B. Anthony was also fighting to ensure black men didn't get the right to vote before white women. We heard this in the track. I just want to highlight it, that many suffragists excluded black women from their events and that the fight for voting rights began much earlier. Anthony promoted a predominantly white history of voting rights activism, which is often believed to have ended in 1920 when the 19th Amendment was ratified, prohibiting states from restricting who can vote based on sex. In fact, Seneca Falls didn't become, as, become known as the origins of the women's rights movement until the 25th anniversary of the meeting in 1873 suggesting that crafting an origin story for the movement was not a priority before then, argues Lisa Tetrault, the historian that you heard in the audio. Though Anthony is often reported as being at the 1848 Seneca Falls meeting, she was not. It was a local affair organized in a few days by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and attended by around 200 to 300 white men and women. The only African-American in attendance in attendance was abolitionist Frederick Douglass. Uh, very important to know that because we know that there was the turmoil, or I would say the the conflict between Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony because of this, because she wanted him to actually put his movement to the side. And I'll ask you, did you know Frederick Douglass found himself at odds with many of the white abolitionists? You know, from 1869 until the day he died, where they made amends hours before his death, Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass were neither friends nor allies. In fact, Douglass was the subject of, of constant coordinated racist attacks by the women's suffrage movement. The animosity stemmed from Frederick's decision to split the women's suffrage movement in the late 1860s during the fight to give African-American men the right to vote through the 15th Amendment. Although he had a strong advocate for equal rights and women's suffrage, he surmised that mixing the two would result in a failure to pass the amendment. So just some uh, information to know, and that information can be found. Also, all of the information you're hearing this evening you can find on our Abolition Today webpage, and you can also find many of our tracks on abolitiontoday.org or on our Abolition Today YouTube page. Before we move forward into the next leap into history, because we know, as they mentioned, how 
the 19th Amendment it came in 1920, but we know that black women didn't get the right to vote until the passage of the Voting Rights Acts in uh, 1965. So before we jump in, and I give uh, Savannah, you, ha- you wanted to chime in again on this? Hi, you said thanks. Man, just I'm really um, enjoying the great clips and information that you're providing. Uh, of course, I was aware um, about the um, relationship between uh, Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony. Um, but anytime, like, I hear about um, the issue, not really issues, but um, the, the problems with congruency in activism work, I'm always drawn to, like, my own personal struggle and my and other allies' personal struggle, even today, like, in this fight. Um, and we talk a lot about mass incarceration and the way that it affects minority families. And we also talk about the the rising rate of the incarceration of women, um, not even noting that, you know, black women as the sisters, as the mothers, the aunts, et cetera, um, and Latino women, you know, of, you know, that the higher, higher um, incarcerated people kind of get this twofold, right? Because they're, a lot of them are being incarcerated at higher rates, and then they're having to deal with, you know, family members being gone and further destructing, you know, minority families, further, you know, suppressing their voice. Um, and and mm-hmm. it's, a real, it's a real problem, right? Um, so, I mean, it, it's, it's always – I can always draw from when we're talking about the context of history – it just it bothers me more that like these things are reoccurring. You know, it's, yeah, it's still we happening. never talk about it. Yeah, in the in the context that, you know, it's not going it's still going on today. Um and so I you know, I appreciate these conversations and I appreciate, you know, this education because people have to understand how and again, like so we can communicate um, and help those who aren't maybe directly affected understand the ways in which it still is impacting our lives today. Mm, thank you so much for that, Savannah. A lot of hands up. Uh, I want to squeeze one more hand in. Uh, 3611, you're on abolition today. Welcome to the program. Yes. Hi, this is Demita calling in. How you all doing today? Hey, Demita hey, Bishop. Hi. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well, and I'm mad I missed the first part of the show because the part I came in was like, yes. <laughs> um, so <laughs> you know, I, wanna, now, I know I'm coming in. Uh, yes, I know I'm in late, and you guys have probably talked about a lot of things that I'm going to say. But when I came in, I heard um, – the young lady talking about what wasn't being taught in school. And for elementary, my daughter, my 11-year-old, was going to one of the top um, public elementary schools in the state of Georgia, but she didn't know her own history. And I caught it one day when I was watching, she and I was watching the women of the movement, and I realized she didn't know who Emmett Till was. So I had to sit Mm. down and educate my daughter on her history. And then my daughter, who is mixed, I didn't give birth to my daughter. So she's 
half Mexican, half black. And when I started mm-hmm. telling her about it, she goes, well, mommy, my teacher told me that I don't really need to know all of the black history because I'm Mexican. So I had to go up to the school and wow. I'm like, no, ma'am, you are black. <laughs> you are black. And, I, you know, mm-hmm. and don't ever tell my daughter that she doesn't need to know her history. I said, yes, you, you, can, you need to learn your Hispanic culture as well as your black history. But at the end of the day, when everybody looks at you, they don't see a Mexican. They see a black woman. So that's what you are. And um, that just really did something to me. So she, we will not be in that county for school this year. She'll be going to a school in the county we've moved to. But um, everyone that knows me knows that I do a lot of courtroom advocacy and things against mass incarceration in the criminal justice system. And one of the things that I've noticed is the way that they get us is by our lack of knowledge. And they tell you that lack of knowledge is no defense, but the type of knowledge that they're expecting us to have is one that a Harvard graduate law student would have. But they don't show right. our counterparts. That they show them more sympathy than they show us in the courtroom. And the one thing that plays against us is our division amongst ourselves. Um, anytime I go to court with with a black man or a woman, it's just me. Now, mm-hmm. if that black man or woman has a white mother, then there's more people there. Or a white wife, there's more people there. But if it's just that black, it doesn't matter who he is. He could have been a very elite person before he got incarcerated. When we go to court, it's just me and that person. And that's the first thing we need to change. I did hear a couple of people say we need to come together. We need to come together on so many levels or we're going to continue to fall. And that's, you know, that's one thing that is hard to do. Um, There's so much envy amongst each other. We have so much jealousy. We don't want to see each other rise. And other races don't act the same way. So for us to correct a lot of, for us to focus on what other people are treating us, we have to address how we're treating ourselves first. And I noticed that even in advocacy. You know, going through the country, when I first, I've only been doing criminal justice advocacy for three years, and I thought it was going to be a world of kumbaya and everybody holding hands and getting along, but it's so much hatred and jealousy amongst each other, and I'm sitting here like, for what? What are we mad about? We have a well, serious yeah, we, problem with, <laughs> we, are, we have I was a serious say problem with our race. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'll- I was just going to chime in and say, you know, you would think the same thing when it comes to ending slavery. You would think everybody would be lined up to say, hey, I'm down. We ending slavery. Let's get this done. So you're absolutely right, right about that. But right. I want to get into a tra- I want to get into a track because I think because because of the way we're laying it out on the show, it's leading up to something. It's leading yeah. up to something. You, you all are hitting on the topics, but we're going to get to the crux of it soon. Remember our topic tonight. We're talking about femme fatale frenemies. And so I'm hearing everybody, a recurring theme, talking about frenemies. You would think these people are your friends, but they're not your friends. So uh, definitely put a, uh, put a uh, plug right there, Demita, because we're definitely going to come back to you. But I want to get into this next track from Professor Lawrence Glickman, and this is How White Backlash Controls American Progress. And that's going to be accompanied by an instrumental track by PopCon, hope I'm pronouncing his name right, Friends Like These, and you're going to hear the a cappella from the Montana Sextet, Who Needs Enemies. You're listening to Abolition Today 
with Yusuf Hassan. We have our guest co-host, Gina Kenny and Tag Harmon. We'll be right back. Abolition. So over the years, the civil rights movements, uh, various movements in this country have certainly seen resistance from conservative white groups, and we're talking dating back, you know, to uh, the Reconstruction era. And it's playing out across uh, this country right now. So Lawrence Glickman is here to walk us through his latest piece in The Atlantic. It's called How White Backlash Controls American Progress. Uh, Lawrence is a history professor at Cornell University. So... uh, Professor Lawrence, as is always the case with the Atlantic articles, the article is very, very thorough. And you go all the way back to sort of the first use of the use of the phrase backlash. And I said in my introduction to you that this is, you know, I, I define it as conservative white groups. But what you learn in the article is that um, it doesn't necessarily have to be about conservative white groups. At times, even... Uh, White people who are, who are progressive have significantly pushed back against the civil rights uh, movement. So let's get a clear definition of what backlash means when it comes to this topic. Yeah, that's a, a great and complicated question because backlash is a term that had many uses uh, in American history. But in 1963, as the civil rights movement heated up, it really came to stand for what became known as the white backlash which was resentment against this pace and speed of the civil rights movement. And you're absolutely right that uh, it was not only conservatives and not only Southerners, but many Northern white liberals who participated in that backlash as they feared the results of uh, full racial equality that were promised by the uh, what became known as the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the uh, Voting Rights Act of 1965. Yeah, well, I think a really important part of the language of backlash that white people used in the 1960s was that they really emphasized their own fears, um, which were typically unfounded about what the consequences of racial equality would be. And they also emphasized their own fragility, uh, their own emotional concern. Uh, If you read articles where newspaper journalists and media people in general interviewed whites in the 1960s, The emphasis was very heavily on their own emotional well-being, their fears, their fatigue with the pace of civil rights. And I just found this so interesting because it's such an inversion of what was really going on in history, which is that African-Americans fighting for racial equality at that point had every right to be exhausted and fatigued and uh, fed up and feeling fragile. So it was kind of an inversion of what was actually going on. And so much of the discourse emphasized, however, that white fragility uh, rather than uh, African-American inequality, which was the crux of the issue. I'm glad you explained that because it's a phrase that we're seeing sort of popping up on social media here and there. And and when I see it, I I often think, well, if I was white, how would I interpret that? Um, uh, Can we talk about um, sort of the concrete ways in which this backlash has affected policy, uh, whether it's the civil rights movement or, or other areas in history where the progressive groups were trying to get something else done, and as a result of the backlash, politicians buckled. Yeah, I think what's, what I try to the point I try to make in the article is that backlash has become fundamental to modern conservatism, but it's also been a huge constraint on American progressive and liberal politics. And the reason for that is that so many liberal politicians um, are fearful of setting off a backlash. 
Uh, they're fearful of what happened in the 1960s happening again, which was when many white uh, people left the Democratic coalition and eventually joined the Republican Party. Many backed off their previous support for New Deal type reforms. So there are just so many examples of that happening where progressive movements have been constrained by the fear of setting off backlashes. You know, you, you, you mentioned um, Reconstruction and Second Reconstruction. Can you um, explain why that distinction is so important? Yeah, that's a really important um, idea. The Reconstruction, of course, refers to the period after the Civil War when the United States had a brief experiment in racial equality uh, and interracial democracy. It didn't last very long. And one of the key elements about the Reconstruction period was how quickly uh, so many whites turned against it and thought it had gone too far and too fast. I'm talking within one or two years of the close of the Civil War, you began to see this discourse about, whoa, whoa, we need to slow down here, when the fact is that racial equality was really only a glimmer at that point, really only beginning. And in the 1960s, uh, historians began to refer to the Civil Rights Movement as the Second Reconstruction, and what they went, meant by that was a second attempt to build a true interracial democracy. But what often happened was the same response to Reconstruction, the same backlash to Reconstruction, happened in reference to the Civil Rights Movement. And so you saw very similar um, language in opposing the Civil Rights Movement that had first emerged in response to the Reconstruction era. Professor Lawrence, before we let you go, um, I, I just think that this is such a fascinating discussion. There's one more term that I want to just throw at you and see and put it through your perspective and, and your scholarly research, which is uh, folks that use the term all lives matter or blue lives matter. I wonder if it fits into the framework of the, the term backlash, because I thought it was so interesting uh, when Emmanuel Acho, who's got a, a, a piece of video that he put out on social media that picked up millions of views, and he appeared on CBS This Morning today, and he was asked a question about Drew Brees and Colin Kaepernick and kneeling, and Emmanuel Acho essentially says, you know, you, to understand oppression, you have to be able to understand that if you tell somebody how they should protest their own oppression, that is intrinsically oppression. Uh, you can't tell someone how to protest their own mistreatment. Can you explain how that term, all lives matter, has been sort of co-opted as a way to reduce Black Lives Matter? Yeah, I think it gets back into a language that we saw in the first backlash to the civil rights movement, which is a language of special privileges. Um, so in other words, a lot of proponents of the white backlash saw racial equality as some special gift, some special uh, demand by African-Americans when it was simply a demand for social justice and equality. And I think we see the same thing with a language like All Lives Matter, which is saying, if we uh, call for uh, racial equality, that has, is somehow unfair and unjust. It's a kind of, again, it's another inversion of uh, demands for equality in which people who have uh, more privilege relative to others feel like their privilege is being taken away when we shine a spotlight on injustice in American society. Who needs enemies with a friend like you? 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 Abolition. 
Man, who needs enemies with friends like you? So you just heard a professor of history at Cornell University, Lawrence Glickman, speaking on how white backlash controls American progress. This is also an article that he wrote for The Atlantic, and that was accompanied by friends like these, PopCon, that was the instrumental, and a little bit of the acapella of the 80s dance classes by Montana Sextet, Who Needs Enemies? Welcome back to Abolition Today with Yusuf Hassan and our guest hosts, Tag Harmon and Gina Kennedy, as well as a host of other uh, longtime supporters of the program. Uh, Gina, I want to start with you. So I'll give you first crack at the response to what we just heard. Um, it, it sounds familiar, personally, honestly. Like, you know, as a, as a white organizer here in Ohio, um, you know, I've had backlash, whether it be, you know, politics, whether it be, you know, court officials, whether it be other organizations um, from people that personally don't know me, people that I've never even sat at the table with. So I understand to an aspect how hard it is to get a movement going with backlash being that opposition. Um, And it's crazy to me because I'm hearing all these dates and it's like this is like history before my mom was even born. Um, and, you know, the things that I, I should have learned while I was in school, you know, and it's it's just absolutely insane to me, the information that you're putting out there. Um, it definitely touches my heart, though, Yusuf. It really does. And I think, you know, you you and many others on this call know that, you know, that I personally have tried as a white woman, as a white person with, you know, who speaks my mind. It's I've done a lot of work. I fight for a lot of people. Um, and to try to be pushed down from doing the work that you're doing, it's tough, right? Because it, it does make it easier just to walk away. But at the end of every day and every night, or at the end, at the start of every day and at the end of every night, um, I, I've always, you know, there has been racist people in my family, you know. Um, I never let that affect me. Um, I've went to east side schools back when busing was a thing here in in cleveland so like you know it like i guess i was just arrogant to the whole racism thing and the slavery thing but you know i've always lived my life that no one no one else's life is worth less than another's and that um you know we should all just be we're all human beings at the end of the day we're all human beings we all came into this earth the same way we're all gonna you know transition the same way so to speak um, and it, it's hurtful, you know, and, and I just know that I do my diligence to try to move the people here, um, not just here, but, you know, I'm into the fight with abolishing slavery. Um, I feel like, you know, I need to be on the front line helping my people, period. So um, that was powerful, though, because uh, the backlash, that just that term, just in general, meant a lot. And it kind of makes you think back of why people can't move together. For sure, for sure. Thank you for that comment. Uh, Tag, I know you have to leave shortly, so uh, you can chime in on this and also uh, tell the people how they can get in contact with you, anything that you have coming up in the near future. Yes, yes. Bless up. Uh, As always, it's an absolute honor and absolutely instructive and worthwhile on all levels to be connecting with y'all on Abolition Today. And 
Yeah, as far as this question of backlash, I mean, you know, uh, they, they, they broke down some of it. I, it does always kind of bother me when, when the what's termed the civil rights movement is, you know, being foregrounded. And, and, and it seems to me that questions of the black liberation movement uh, tend to kind of get uh, shoved off to the side behind that. But this question of um, what's being termed white backlash and reconstruction and what's termed the second reconstruction, you know, this is, as we continue to see, this is, this is how policy often gets moved. This is how these, these slavers and genociders that uh, be, you know, uh, holding the, the levers and, and in positions of authority, uh, it's, it's, it's what tends to move the needle and it, it's, it's what tends to decide, um, you know, uh, this question, the so-called pace of how progress should go. I mean, I believe it was uh, El Haj Malik El Shabazz who, who had put it something along the lines of, you know, well, yeah, if you're sitting on a cold stove, yeah, sure, you could talk about, you know, maybe you, you need not to uh, go so, so fast or, you know, maybe slow it down a bit. But that heads out here is, is sitting on a hot stove, and uh, there's no we, – we don't have time to be talking about slowing down because, you know, it's going to ruffle ruffle the feathers of – of uh, racism, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it, mm-hmm. it's outrageous. So I, I do have to make moves, but it's it's always uh, strong to connect with y'all. I, I, I greatly appreciate um, what what all the sisters brought to the discussion. Um, and as far as what's coming up soon, I, I do absolutely want to highlight um, a, a dear comrade of mine, as well as uh, some some other comrades who are uh, in in a spot right now. And um, there is a fundraising page that I would like to point toward. Um, I, I don't have the minutes right now to get into all of the particulars, but basically uh, as an aboli- uh, on abolitionist levels, you know, these heads put down their funds to make sure that someone was able to be released from off of Rikers. Uh, as we know, heads are, are, are dying on Rikers um, all the time, including just a, a few days ago. And so uh, they put up the bond and, um, you know, sadly, uh, circumstances led to this individual uh, not, not showing up um, behind that bond. So now they're, they're stuck with uh, some very uh, heavy charges um, in terms of funds uh, that, you know, that they, that they need to, our support on. So they're, they're, they need to raise 50 Gs and um, in, in not very – much time, um, and about a fifth of that, about 10,000, has been raised thus far. Uh, so I just want to shout out the tiny URL for that fundraiser. Mm-hmm. It's uh, tinyurl.com slash nybondsupport. Uh, NY um, so that would be tinyurl.com slash nybonds. U P P O R, and you could also email free the prisoners, 2021, at gmail dot com, and you can find out more information about that circumstance and and um, support however you can, uh, you know, help to circulate that. So greatly appreciate all of y'all. Again, it's it's always an honor, and and salute to the abolitionists, and also um, for those especially in the N Y area, but wherever you may be. Um, this coming Wednesday on WBAI, there's going to be a very strong uh, uh, broadcast of what's happening with uh, Brother Ralph Pointer and Sister Betty Davis. 
and heads are going to be breaking down uh, the work that Spirit of Mandela uh, has been doing, uh, including the, the tribunal that we just held uh, last October charging the U.S. with genocide, which they were found guilty of on all five charges. So um, that will be at 8 p.m. Eastern this coming Wednesday, if anyone's able to check that out. Uh, greatly appreciate you all, as always, and peace, peace. I'll check for sure. the remainder for sure. of the, of the thank, archive. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tag, for showing up this evening, man. Really appreciate you for the show. So on on the topic of backlash, you know, just reading a section from the uh, article in The Atlantic uh, where the professor says, during Reconstruction, opponents of the black freedom struggle deployed preemptive apocalyptic, slippery slope arguments that have remained enduring features of backlash politics up to the present. And I want to play a really quick uh, clip for you all to listen to, you know, uh, just to give you a modern-day example of backlash. I'm not going to tell you about it before I play it. I'll tell you about it afterwards. Abolition. How dare you come to St. Louis and say you got the back of that lousy bitch, state's attorney Kim Gardner. She is just like you. That's why birds of a feather, bitches. That's what you are. You hate cops. You hate white people. You do everything you can to give all the blacks who are criminals every benefit of the doubt. And everybody else is suspect. Black lives only matter when a white person takes it. You blacks can kill each other all you want. In fact, I think that's the grand solution. We need to start driving around the ghettos and just dropping boxes of bullets on every street corner. Let them take each other out. Things were much better in this world, in this country, when everybody stayed in their own goddamn neighborhood by dusk. There's only one thing worse than a badass, empowered black woman. That's a fat-ass, empowered black woman who's got public reins in her hands. If we'd known you all were going to be this much trouble, we would have picked our own fucking cotton. How many rounds of ammunition does it take to kill a solitary alien? Once to the body, pops twice to the cranium. It's been 20 years since humanity gave up. Letting these alien freaks take over and enslave us. Used to be scared of us, now they want to bury us. We up for resistance, move, secure the area. Used to be in the shadows, but now we ready for war. Retaliation is the key, so we gotta settle the score. X-Con, we neutralize the enemy. The last line of defense against tyranny. The advent's a bunch of punks signing treaties. We got a turn-based strategy to battle these ETs. Load and cock and hold the spot. Throw a bomb and go and pop it. No more plotting. We about to get into position. We know they watching. No more talking. We not falling. We not stopping. Guns are popping. Bodies dropping. We are the resistance. Load and cock and hold the spot. Throw a bomb and go and pop it. No more plotting. We about to get into position. We know they watching. No more talking. We not falling. We not stopping. Guns are popping. Bodies dropping. We are the resistance. Meet up at the rendezvous, yeah, you better run fast Get into position and get ready for a bloodbath These genetic freaks think that they can use me Pull out the blade, now we sex toy sushi Hit him with a missile, yeah, we got him shaking now Don't stop till hostiles are taken down 
serpentine soldier. Guns out the holster. If they get a hold of you, knock them off the shoulder. Fire in the hole, baby, we bout to blow the roof up. Time is running out, maybe we ought to start a shootout. Keep blasting, no matter if you hit them or not. Cause the sharpshooter will hit them with a critical shot. If you run out of ammo, then tag them with a melee. We got them running, probably got them hollering, made it. A human that fights back, oh yeah, it doesn't sit. The Advent Coalition can kiss my buttocks. Loading cocky, holding spot, throw a bomb and go and pop No more plotting, we about to get into position. No, they watching, no more talking. We not falling, we not stopping. Guns are popping, bodies dropping. We are the resistance. Loading cocky, hold us fighting, throw a bomb and go and pop No more plotting, we about to get into position. We know they're watching, no more talking, we not falling, we not stopping, guns are popping, bodies dropping. We are the resistance. We're talking about waging war on police. Let's talk about being accountable and making we sure we deal with the the the. The issues we're talking about right now that led to the unfortunate death of Mr. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Orlando um, Castillo, Mike Brown, and many others. Many Abolition. So you just heard the poster child of white backlash. That was a racist rant that was sent to Baltimore State Attorney Marilyn Mosby, and that was followed up by XCOM 2, We Are the Resistance nerd out, and that was the reply from St. Louis Attorney General Kim Gardner. Welcome back to Abolition Today with Yusuf Hassan and Gina Kinney. Uh, we also have Demita Bishop and uh, Savannah Eldridge on the line. Uh, Demita, I want to start with you because I know that Kim Gardner is your people, so I'll give you first crack at her. Okay, yeah. So let me explain to you guys what Kim Gardner is doing in St. Louis. And, you know, a lot of times I'm I'm not really fond of prosecutors, but she actually came in there and is trying to get some of those people who have been incarcerated since they were babies out of the system. Um, in St. Louis and in um, Ferguson and the surrounding areas of those counties, they go into mm-hmm. the low-income communities and they just pick somebody to pin a crime on when they can't find the person who actually committed it. And most of the time yeah. it's juveniles who've already been in the system for small stuff, like maybe hot-wiring a car or shoplifting, but now all of a sudden they mm-hmm. got this mass murder charge on them. So Kim Gardner, once she came into office, she started going in uncovering all the, um, what's the right, um, oh, the corruption of the department in mm-hmm. St. Louis City's Justice Department and started trying to get some of those people released to the best of her ability. And they started hitting her with death threats. I think she done got in an indictment on some money charges or something. They've been trying to come at her in all ways. And um, I went to St. Louis in 2020 and did a, a, a march and a rally for about 10 of their incarcerated individuals there who all have, like, fighting charges, but fist fights. And one of them, I think he was, like, 15 but the, and five feet tall, and the person that actually mm-hmm. committed the crime was over six feet tall. And so I went down wow. there, you know, to do a, a rally for them and to kind of speak to the community. And on the day I met Kim Gardner, they were, like, escorting her out because somebody tried to, like, they were sending her, like, death threats to her office. And she hadn't even been in office long. So I told her, I said, oh, I'm that MF. You you need me to come up here, you let me know. And that's how we all, that's how we got started. <laughs> I said, because they're not going to run, we're not running from them. 
it, we're not going to so, run from them. And mm-hmm. No, nah, I appreciate you giving us that information. So uh, I'm going to do a last round for all three of you so we can get into our final segment. Uh, Demita, you have anything coming up soon? I know you just had uh, Freedom Fest down in Atlanta. Do you have anything else coming up, any websites or campaigns, anything that you want to let the people know about? Well, as of right now, no, we're just um, launching Playfair Fridays again where we educate people on the laws and the justice system. So that will start August the 15th, I believe. i got to look, check the date to make sure that was the date. Um, and then we're going to put uh, Freedom Fest Part 2 for late February, early March. And um, Streets 94.5, the radio station here in Atlanta, they actually want to do a live remote at the event. So it's going to be bigger than it was this time and hopefully more powerful. So we're getting excited about that. So that's about it for right now, other than my normal awesome. court cases coming up. <laughs> Yusuf is going to be in the building. Please, <laughs> Yusuf is going to be in the building. That's all I'm going to say. I'll be down there. Yes, and hopefully Max yes. will be along again as well. So I definitely yes. thank you for calling in. Uh, I'm going to pass it off to you now, Savannah. Uh, any updates? on CLLP, uh, Abolish Slavery Texas, the uh, Be Frank for Justice, anything you want to let the people know? Hey, yes, excuse us for the time. Um, so I'm still uh, in the final stages of planning the Abolition Now Conference here in Texas. Um, we're going to start actually with the screening as soon as I work out the details um, with Curtis Davis of Slave State 2022 on Friday, November 18th, and then continue on for November 19th from 10 to 6 with our conference. And it's going to be a huge think tank and kind of pep rally leading up to um, Texas refiling our bill um, next session to end slavery here in the state. Um, there's been a lot of momentum. Um, and then the other thing I'm working on is um, – with all the deaths in Alabama, a couple of inside folks are organizing um, prayer um, and meditation twice a day at 7A and 7P. Um, you can find the number on my, I don't have the number handy, but um, they're just offering a space for people to pray for those in ADOC um, because so many people are dying in the Alabama Department of Corrections. It's insane. And they really need our support. Um so if, if you guys are interested in participating, you just want to pray in your own, you know, in the comfort of your own home and just um, let's just stand in solidarity with them and let them know that we're thinking of them um, and support them in any way that we can. Sure. Uh, make sure you get that information to us so we can share it on the Abolition Today page as well, as well as uh, what's going on with the Texas, uh, what is it, uh, Texas Department of Justice and the air conditioned situation down there as well. Been uh, paying attention well, that, to that. As- I, I didn't even mention that bill, but um, I was working with um, TPCA on that. That bill was actually heard in the Appropriations Committee, and they're accepting public comments. However, here in our state, uh, you have to be a Texas resident, so it's not like everywhere else where anybody can call or comment. Um, but it's a big deal that it is being heard in the interim last session. It got as far as it had ever gotten. So we're hopeful with the, you know, it was covered by Time Magazine um, and so on and so forth. And, and I'm so, I just want to mention Dr. Amit Dominic really quickly. Like she's worked so hard on this bill and she's doing it on pretty much on her own now with no funding. 
um, except from Nerdcat, who's her Facebook sponsor. So just shout out to her, a strong black woman, just like doing the most for our loved ones. Because I have a few loved ones in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. So I just want to give her her flowers, too. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for calling in and all of the valuable information that you gave us this evening. And so last but not least, Gina. Um, so tomorrow we actually are traveling to Lima, Ohio to welcome uh, Free, a man who has spent 38 years incarcerated as a model prisoner. Um, unfortunately, our parole board here uh, slaps people, resentences them uh, for nature of crime and community opposition, but doesn't even take community support on behalf of release. Um, so mm. our organization has pretty much been there for him the last five years, uh, you know, fighting for him, advocating for him, telling his story. Uh, so recently he went through all the hoops that you would normally trying to fight your release. He was released and it was revoked. Uh, we got involved. We got media involved. Uh, so we tried to stay on the back burner. Um, I was actually supposed to speak on his behalf and they silenced me because of my name and because of the organization and what we're trying to accomplish. So uh, we made sure that we made media there, or had media there, which I think played a huge part in his final release. So we're going to be welcoming him, welcoming him out those gates tomorrow. Uh, we usually do an annual wrongful conviction day here in Ohio. Um, this will be our fourth one. I normally do a rally down at the Justice Center. However, this year we're going to dedicate it to our beloved buddy, Isaiah Andrews, who was wrongfully incarcerated for 46 years the third longest serving incarcerated person in the United States who had passed away, what, two and a half weeks after being final, fully exonerated. So um, other than that, we're just boots on ground trying to educate and inspire people. We've been doing work with Building Freedom Ohio, trying to bring them on board with uh, ending slavery here in Ohio. Unfortunately, we thought we could do something this year, but We've been silenced with that bill as well, so we're preparing for next General Assembly like Savannah is doing for Texas. Got you. So thank you so much, uh, Gina. Uh, we'll definitely have to do this again, and maybe I have to fly through Cleveland again, you know, uh, just so uh, we can do another broadcast from over there. But it was definitely Yeah, a and this time we can go here. to the private prison like we were supposed to. <laughs> exactly. The weather didn't allow us to that time. But yeah. for sure – Thank you so much. Keep in touch. Keep us abreast of everything that's going on out in Ohio. Always. Okay, so now it's down to the lonesome me-some. It's just me. Uh, great show we had this evening. Uh, I definitely want to take a moment out to make sure we acknowledge the birthdays of Ida B. Wells and Asata Shakur. Both were yesterday. Uh, Ida B. Wells was born September, I'm sorry, July 16th, 1862, and Asata Shakur, July 16th, 1947. Happy birthday to both of them, women who have inspired generations of women. So definitely, definitely the best to Sister Asata. So feels weird being here by myself, but getting to the closing uh, closing comments, you know, closing arguments, I'm thinking about the courtroom. 
Uh, we want to thank our sponsors and partners, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, the IMWE Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network, SEMA Urge, Wake, uh, Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, Prismatic Dreams, the Black Talk Radio Network, the Abolished Slavery National Network. Uh, thank everyone who called in this evening and to all of their organizations. Uh, I'm going to mention them, and hopefully I don't forget anyone. Uh, Be Frank for Justice, uh, the Abolished Slavery National Network I already mentioned, uh, Ensuring Parole for Incarcerated Citizens, the Stand Up for Justice Northeast Ohio, TAG is Fruit and Roots, not Fruit and Roots, that's where I order my fruit from, it's uh, Root and Branch, and also formerly known as the uh, sorry, Root and Branch Collective, formerly known as IWOC NYC. So thank all of them. If anyone I forgot, please forgive me. It wasn't my intention. So remember to subscribe to our YouTube page, youtube.com slash abolition today. And also our Abolition Today Facebook page for all the news, information, and music you hear on the program. We're also available on all major podcast platforms. Remember to join the movement at AbolishSlavery.us to become part of the solution. Text END THE EXCEPTION, one word, END THE EXCEPTION, to 52886. Follow the prompts to send a signed petition on your behalf to your congressional reps in support of the proposed 28th Amendment to repeal and replace the exception clause of the 13th Amendment. Also, on the AbolishSlavery.us page, you can find out what's going on in your state. If, if your state is one of the states that have ballot initiatives for this year or upcoming ballot initiatives, you can stay up to date on everything there. You can also reach out to myself. That's Yusuf, Y-U-S-U-F, at AbolitionToday.org. And you can also reach Max at Max at AbolitionToday.org. So getting into our Bridging the Gap segment, we have a really nice uh, special performance by a young lady by the name of Charlotte Bates. She's on YouTube by the name of Charlotte World. That's one word, S-H-A-R-L-E-T-T-E-W-O-R-L-D. She will be performing Sojourner Truth's Ain't I a Woman. This is a famous a uh, speech that she gave at the Women's Convention in Akron, Ohio, on May 28, 1851. And that's going to be followed up by Jungle Brothers, Black Woman. We'll be back next Sunday, July 24th, God willing, with another master class on slavery abolition. So until next week, think about abolition today. Peace and blessings be upon you all. Abolition. Well, children, where there is so much racket, there must be something out of kilter. I think that twixt the Negroes of the South and the women at the North, all talking about rights. The white man will be in a fix pretty soon. But what's all this here talking about? That man over there says that women need to be helped into carriages and lifted over ditches and to have the best place everywhere. Nobody ever helps me into carriages 
or over mud puddles or gives me any best place. And ain't I a woman? Look at me. Look at my arm. I have plowed and planted and gathered into barns. And no man could head me. And ain't I a woman? I could work as much and eat as much as a man when I could get it and bear the lash as well. And ain't I a woman? I have borne 13 children and seen most all sold off to slavery. And when I cried out with my mother's grief, none but Jesus heard me. And ain't I a woman? Then they talk about this thing in the head. What's this they call it? That's it, honey. What's that got to do with women's rights or Negroes' rights? If my cup won't hold but a pint and yours holds a quart, wouldn't you be mean not to let me have my little half-measure fool? Then that little man in black there, he says women can't have as much rights as men because Christ wasn't a woman. Where did your Christ come from? Where did your Christ come from? From God and a woman. Men had nothing to do with him. If the first woman God ever made was strong enough to turn the world upside down all alone, these women ought to be able to turn it back and get it right side up again. And now they is asking to do it. The men better let them Obliged to you for hearing me. And now old Sojourner ain't got nothing more to say. I want to create a beautiful world for you, black woman. A world of beauty for beautiful you. A world of beauty for beautiful you. Black woman, mother of my earth. Black woman, you gave me birth. You can truly see what's in me You can help me be the best that I can be You feed my fire when I'm on the wire Keeping me calm when it's getting higher Sweet like sugar and hot like wine Always keeping you on my mind Giving my life a new light to reach for Giving me so much, how could I ask for more? Keeping us tight when we're getting loose The darker the berry, the sweeter the juice Black one
Colors in the sky above black woman. It's you that I love, black woman.